I think the trigger point was like, I still have family there. Um, and my niece had sent a text to, to my daughter and um, basically saying, uh, there is there is no internet here and they've cut up the VPNs and, and I'm hoping that you can get this um, text and please be our voice and tell the people how lonely we are in this part of the world and that just was like cut me deep it hurt it felt like it was my duty to act this was too close to me here I am in a free country um, which I thank my parents for um, and I have the opportunity to be their voice uh, for people who can't even access the internet and that's Nilu Bedrud, my good friend, on this episode of Time to Sing Your Song. Imagine yourself rolling down the streets of Tehran as a 10-year-old, rioting, rocks being thrown in every direction, and your dad telling you to put your head down and don't come up. That was the reality for Nilu Bedrud, who had a front row seat to the Iranian Revolution in 1979. She soon began to experience a very different and restrictive life on every level. She was moved into a segregated girls-only school, had to cover up at all times, and lived a life of quiet desperation. Nilu and her family ultimately came to the U.S., where she has lived for the last four decades. Her experiences created a hunger to excel in school and in business. However, the memories of the pain and loss of basic rights that Nilu had enjoyed as a young girl came into sharp focus over the last few months with the women's uprising spurred by the tragic death of Massa Amini. Someone's calling often comes in many shapes and sizes. For Nilu, it became very clear as she was brought back to the streets as a 10-year-old girl, fearful for her life. Take a listen to Nilu's story and hear how she is now singing her song as an activist against the oppression of women's rights in her home country. Nilu Bedrood, my good friend, welcome to Time to Sing Your Song. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. I love talking to you, Nilu. I want to uh, start off with a, a provocative question. And, and you know, there's so many things going on in the United States today. There's so many things going on in the world. Why should we be paying attention and really caring about what's going on in Iran? Actually, you you corrected me. It's Iran. So I'm going to say Iran. Why should we be paying attention? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for having me here today to tell my story. You know, when you asked me first to do this, I was a bit hesitant. I mean, I, I, I know I'm passionate about this topic and I'm super comfortable telling my story. But my story wasn't unique. So I was like, why me? I'm, I'm not a global brand activist. And there are so many more qualified individuals, journalists, and public figures who have really dedicated their lives and continue to for this humanitarian effort in Iran. Um, and, you know, people like Nazanin Bunyadi, Masi Ali Najad, Shirin Abadi, many public Hollywood figures, um, Amal Clooney, who, you know, they outwardly speak. Uh, and they spend majority of their time doing this. But then I thought, there's so many people more like me that if I can 
um, inspire one person out there to start putting their fears aside and acknowledge it and put their energy into a good thing, our collective universe will be better place to live. But, but to answer your question, why now? Why should people care if not for the uh, humanitarian um, reasons for the fact that what is happening in Iran today is crime against women, men, children. Um, and we should not allow any country to kill, imprison, torture their people because they're they're demanding basic human rights. Like imagine if the US or other European countries were not supporting Ukraine. Russians will be taking over and then take over one country at a time. If we don't do anything about it, we will give power to these countries who God knows what will they do. This could mean greater repression around the world. Um, the Islamic regime is currently in Team Russia, as you know, helping them build drones that uh, kills innocent people around the world. They continue to feed and support terrorist countries, um, not to mention the nuclear deal that's going on. So if we allow that, we give power to a government that is a true theocracy. So do we stand on the sideline and see what comes out of it? Or we do, do we do something about it? You know, Nilu, I, I love and I find it interesting that you came to the decision to join this podcast, but I also at the same time find it interesting that you are like, well, what do I have to say? And, and I guess what I would argue is if many Nilus out there are beginning to share their voice and, and talk about what's going on, it's going to only embolden the effort against everything that's going on in Iran today. So I, I applaud you for doing that. And I don't think I would would minimize the impact that one person, especially one person without a big brand or, you know, that everybody knows, but the, the impact that you personally can have. So thank you for joining the conversation today and, and obviously everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. So Neelu, you were born in 1969. Uh, we're about the same yep. age uh, in Toronto. Uh, you had obviously a very different upbringing than I did. And so I'm curious because you were born before the revolution. Can you talk about yep. what life was like as a kid? Yeah. First of all, my full name is Nilufar. Um, my my nickname is Nilu, but I go with Nilu. Um, but I was born in 69 in Tehran. Um, my parents were self-made, I would say upper middle class. I, um, what did your parents do just out of curiosity when you say self-made? Yeah. My, my mother was a elementary school teacher, actually second grade. And my father was a, um, agriculture engineer. He spent a few years working in the field and then he worked for the central bank and and then owned his own business where he imported goods into Iran and and from Iran. So, so truly a self-made man, like going from the fields to owning his own company. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you know, I I I grew up um, going to um, international elementary school. Um, they um, it was boy girls and and uh, teachers from uh, Britain and, and US. And um, we studied that curriculum. I, I have fond memories. I, you know, I, I would always say that I 
uh, my early years, I lived in what they call the heydays of Iran. Um, I have fond memories of uh, traveling to the the hometown of my my family, which is Astara, which is northern part of Iran, where my parents are from, and and um, spend holidays by the Caspian Sea, and then later on traveled to Europe with my family, and and also to U.S. So you know, I've I've great memories of friends, family. So we're going to get to the fact that that you've lived now in the U.S. for a while, but I'm curious: can you just maybe? compare living in Iran before the revolution to maybe what it's like for somebody to, to live in the U S it, it sounds very similar, but were there any significant differences or, you know, is it basically what it's like to grow up in the U S now? I think for the most part, it's, it, you know, the early days, it was very much similar. Um, I mean, you want, you could do the normal things. We, you know, watch the TV shows actually came from, from the U S they were, they were dubbed, um, you know, I, I uh, remember watching Little House on the Prairies and <laughs> all, the, all, the, all the things that, you know, were in uh, back in the days, but very similar before the revolution. So talk about the revolution. And I'm curious because when the revolution occurred, I think you actually were in the United States where it was kind of brewing, but you did spend a few years uh, during the course of the revolution as a very young girl. So can you talk about what that was like? And especially yeah. the changes, yeah. like obviously, once again, you've established that you grew up in a pretty, like having a nice life, travel, going to a great school, and now everything changes. So can you share what that was like for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, ironically, in in the summer of 79, um, the year the revolution took place in Iran, um, we were vacationing in the U.S. We went to Seattle, New Jersey. We we went back. We went back. Things were brewing in Iran. My family needed to be home. Uh, but I remember, as a ten year old, I was I was confused and frightened. I had like neighbors um, who were friends of my family attending protests, supporting these religious leaders. Um, I specifically, I have one one specific memory that I was riding in, in a car with my father on a main street uh, where protests were breaking in and people were getting their hands on guns and riots broke down. I remember people running and chanting in the streets, throwing stones. And, and my father was just telling me, stay down, stay down behind the passenger seat. So uh, don't come out. Um, but you know, those were just vivid memories that have stayed with me. And fast forward, I was, I think, watching a clip on social media a couple of weeks ago that took me straight back to that night um, behind my father's, you know, car in the streets of Tehran, and where there was fear, anxiety, terror, you know, you know, all time high. There were, you know you know, series of major events that took place. Um, I remember the Shah, who was the king of Iran, um, the leader of the country left. There was a new leader that came in, super religious. Um, and, you know, those were frightening moments. I remember like coming days after after that, I would go pick up the newspaper in the in the front of the house. And there were, 
pictures of bare-chested men with bullets through their heads and bodies. I don't think I'll ever forget that picture. The entire first page of a national newspaper. Imagine that that the trauma that it creates. Um, it was it was like you know the the new regime wanted to show the world that that uh, you know they were there to change everything that was there before. So. You know, those those were the kind of I would say hot and heavy moments of you know when the uh, things really started to change. What were some of the changes that you began to see? Well, well, as a child, you know, I you know I I talked about I went to you know private schools, international schools. We had mixed British and teachers and boys and girls. Anyway, um, the year after that. They separated us. Uh, they put us in what they called the transition schools. That that was like in 1980. I remember that that year vividly because my younger sister was born there. I was by then I was 11 years old, um, and you know I uh, you know after that they put us in schools where we had to cover our head. So you know and and those were probably the toughest school years I remember where. Year after year, they would chip away more freedom, introduce more restrictions, um, no showing of hair, no plucking of eyebrows, no nail polish. I mean, those are things that are, you know, um, important for for a teenager, for a young, young teenager. Um, so th- those are just kind of like the my early memories of like what happens from transition from what was... Um, what I was accustomed to, to, to the now, the new regime enforcing the laws. How did you make sense of all of these changes? Were there, were they things that you and your family discussed? Were you aware of kind of the, the rationale behind it? Or were they just changes that were happening that you just had to, had to jump on board with? You kind of you kind of start doing things in hiding. That was that. I mean, obviously, my family was against it, but there was so much chaos going on. You know, right after the revolution happened, um, they were going after anyone and everyone who had something to do with the government and or you know the the old regime. My my uncle um, had you know was the head of a central bank in Iran. And um, they arrested him. They put him in prison. So you start kind of going more inward, inward, I would say. Uh, You know, things you would do at home would be different than you would do outside. Um, And that's that's what I remember. Like my my family was always against it, but we, we couldn't speak up. Just trying to put myself in your position. I think in 1980, I don't even know what the heck I was doing. It's a great decade. I'm not sure exactly what I was doing in 1980. I think it was about nine years Were old. Were you in middle school? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Elementary. I was in grade school. Yes, I was definitely in elementary school. But but my concerns um, are extremely minor compared to what you went through. So I guess what I'm I'm curious of is how did how did you cope with this at the time, or did you just kind of you know do what everybody else does? You just kind of manage through it and hope for the best, but. Is there anything you did to to manage through it? I mean, I I was super young. I mean, what do you do? You do what your parents do. You just kind of live through it. As a matter of fact, 
um, you know, fast forward years after that, I was talking to someone and I said, yeah, I mean, there was a revolution and this is what happened. And, and, and she stopped me. She's like, gee, can you just recognize that that was a very traumatic moment of your life? But you, you talk about it as if, you know, it was just a moment, you know, time, time in your life that just was there and you just brush over it. But I think that's what you have to do to survive. I wasn't going to go there, but, and when I think about what you went through, my guess is you probably have a lot of learnings, maybe things that when you reflect back, you say, you know, this really changed who I am and probably prepared you for difficult shit in the future. Is, is that true when you reflect back? I think it has. Um, I mean, I let other people be the judge of it. I, um, <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I think, I think I, I've encountered many difficult times, as as many people have in their lives. I, um, I always try to anchor myself that I can get through this, um, that I can do, you know, whatever I I set my mind to with grace. Um, and I often think that. Sometimes fear is just part of the journey and, and you learn to rise above it. I think that mm. that's, that's one thing that I've stayed with me. Yeah. You know what? I, uh, I was uh, talking to my own podcast, which by the time we release this interview, uh, the one where somebody interviewed me will be out there. And, and one of the things that I said is I don't think I've really grown as a human being in times that were good. The only times that I've really grown, and I'm once again, not saying that great times aren't good. And, you know, maybe I learned some things about me, but when I really grow, when I become a better person, when I realize what's important, it's those mm -hmm. difficult times. And that's why I bet you, if, if you step back and you really look at who you are, which you're an incredible human being, my guess is a lot of it really does stem back to those experiences. I, I feel like it has. I think it has shaped my my uh, my life as it is today. It's hard to to look back as a child and say, "Oh, great! I'm going through tough times. It's going to help me be a better person later on." But yeah, you know, yeah. When I'm 53 and I look back and I think, yeah, probably shaped my life. You would have been the most incredible kid in the world if at the time you're like, oh, this is only going to prepare me to be a better human being when you were, when you were 10 and 11 years old. <laughs> so you guys got the hell out of Iran. And I think yes, that was a did. couple of years later. So talk about what prompted, I mean, I think it's pretty damn obvious, but what prompted you to actually make the decision to leave, which is not easy to leave your home country. No, it's not. And and I often look back and, and think, geez, would I would I be able to make that sacrifice for my kids? I mean, um the the coming years, the couple years after the revolution, it was pretty suffocating. Um, you know, many of my family members, they were leaving the country one at a time and for a chance to live a free life or a better life. So um, I can't really pin down exactly, you know, the day that my family said, okay, we're leaving, but there was always this plan to leave and, and go towards the U S. Um, so, you know, we, my father, you know, said, this is what we're going to do. And we were left to go to Germany. Um, I had a couple of cousins there and, and then from there we, we came to the U S. 
Yeah, you know, I just want to pause for a second and applaud your parents because once again, Iran was obviously not an easy place to live in at that time, especially for your parents who were totally against what was going on. But to pick up the family and move them to the United States, that takes guts. And I think what's important, although really haven't talked about it, but your parents were successful before 1979. Like they had a great job in my guess, and we'll get into this, but when they got to the United States, you know, they probably had to start from the bottom, like many immigrants do, which, you know, I applaud your parents. I know your dad has passed, but your mom's still around. So that, that yeah. took some serious guts. I, I, yeah, absolutely did. And, and, and I thank both of them, um, every day. Um, the years I uh, after I landed uh, with my family in Los Angeles were not easy. Imagine landing in LA, you know, um, it, you know, with fear in you, fear of not knowing anyone. I mean, we had a couple family members here, and not having your best friend next to you, um, learning to be fluent in another language and, and try to constantly assimilate yourself to the environment. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, my parents were both trying you know, new ways of living in a country. Both parents went, ended up going to adult school to, to, you know, learn the language further um, and new trade. I remember my mom, you know, who was a teacher in Iran, as I said, went went to a cosmetology school. And, you know, my father went to learn computers and accounting. Um, so learning new language, environment, all that. Um, and then me, of course, in high school. I got to ask, what was it like as an immigrant from Iran coming to a U.S. high school in the early 80s? Were you able to to blend in? How did you make it work? Well, I went to Taft High School in Woodland Hills in Southern California. So there was a, you know, a population of, I would say, Iranians um, mm. back then here. So I went to school with my cousin. So that that was a familiar face. And I think that that helped to to be surrounded by some familiar faces. Um, but I would say it, it, it wasn't easy to 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 fit in, fit in as a, you know, life as a teenager in a high school is hard enough, but life right. as a teenager, as a newcomer is even harder, I think. So what did your parents end up doing? Were they successful immediately like they were in Iran or did it take some time? What was their path? You know, they had, they had a small savings and they, my father made an investment in a business that failed. That's another familiar immigrant story. Um, and then, you know, they chipped away their savings, um, you know, slowly. And, and then each year we downsized and downsized that had odd jobs to make ends meet. It was rough. It was rough to go from having a really comfortable home to, you know, you know, back then, you know, having a street of your home named after you, the street we lived in called Nilfar, um, to uh to you know not having enough money to pay your rent so you know i started working in a very young age i was 15 um to, you know to to have some pocket money and also help my family i you know i worked in restaurant i worked in department store i worked as a teller in a bank you know 
then finished high school and and uh, went to Cal State Northridge to become a dentist and then shifted to business. <laughs> By we'll get to that one in a second. Oh, so you yeah. almost were yeah. you almost were my dentist and not my uh, you know my partner in crime yes. in the business world. Yeah, That's can you imagine? Funny. I'm glad I'm not a dentist. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, that's funny. But, but in all sincerity, what did you learn about yourself? And, and I just want to paint a picture. I mean, here you are pre 79 living an incredible life. You go through a couple years that were difficult. Then you guys yeah. make this bold decision to move to the U S you're in this new country. You're working now, um, working like all these different jobs to support your parents. You're seeing your parents probably, I don't know, maybe not what they wore before when they were in Iran. So what did you learn about yourself during that period of time? I mean, I was determined to really be the best version of myself. Like, um, I wanted a better life. I, I had lived a life in Iran through the transition years. I knew exactly how it is to really force someone to do something that they're not supposed to do. I, I, I knew how, how it is to take someone's freedom away. So I, I felt like here's my chance to do something better. So I was really determined, you know, from early age and, you know, whether it's cultural influences, you're supposed to be a, you know, either a doctor or an engineer. So that's kind of where my head was where, when I wanted to become a dentist, but then I quickly realized that that was in the path for me. So, um, you know, I shifted. When you say you wanted to be the best version of yourself, can you, can you expand on that? Were you talking about like, I want to have the best job. I want to make a lot of money. I want to be an activist. I want to show everything that's going on in Iran. Like what was the best version of yourself back then? Cause we're going to talk about where you are today in a few minutes, but just curious how you define best version. I mean, edu finishing education, you know, back then I, I didn't, I definitely did not grow up to think, oh my God, I'm going to be an activist. But best, best version of myself was finishing college, having a job that, you know, uh, I was able to support myself and my, my family and, and um, being able to be whatever that version of success was when you were 18, 19 years old. So th that was in my head is kind of like finish education, find a great job and, and, and live a free life. So that best version included a realization that dentistry was not for you. <laughs> I'm being a little 100%. And I, and I know you, I need to go into the business world. So what was behind that? What, what was behind the pivot? Uh, it was a very uncalculated faith, I would say, or or a coincidence. But um, very early on, I realized that you know maybe maybe biology is not the thing for me. So I was trying to figure out what what to do, and um, I was always fascinated by computers. I was good in math, and but I didn't want to do computer science and. You know, a friend of mine said, well, what about accounting and management information systems? And I'm like, what is that? So I looked into it. I shifted to accounting. I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't see myself being an accountant. But then that sounds um, exciting is probably what you're thinking, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just but then by then I was like a year or two into it. And then I realized, okay, 
management information and, and accounting. Uh, at least it had that computer and, and information system technology elements of it. And this was a long time ago, Mike. But, um, you know, it, and it was a new, brand new major that they were offering at Cal State Northridge site. I'm like, all right, this 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 is the path for me. So I, I went that route not knowing where it takes me. I think it's always interesting that most of us can trace our success, not necessarily just a hard work. Like I am the biggest believer in, you know, work your ass off and good things will happen. But oftentimes it's those people that we meet along the way. And I think there was a person who took a chance on you. And I'm curious, like who that was and what do you think they saw in you at that time? Oh my God. Her name is Jean, Jean Smith. You know, I call You still talk to Jean? I do. I do. Okay, She's actually, good. Jean? Uh, yeah, I know. She's, <laughs> I call her the woman that changed my life, but I, I still see her and I talk to her. Um, you know, I, uh, right out of college, I wanted to get a job. I had this vivid vision. They talk about visualizing to, you know, walking out of a high rise with my briefcase in my hand. I know it sounds, uh, you know, corny maybe today, but that was my vision. And I couldn't land a job like all the major big eight back then firms, they, they wanted accountants. Um, so I went <clears throat> to the career center. I said, so what do I do? And they're like, well, this woman who graduated ironically with the same major as you is now working for Arthur Anderson. And this is this is her name and information. So I actually wrote her a letter. I told her about myself and how I worked through high school and through college. And, uh, you know, I wanted to have a chance to meet with her. And lo and behold, she called me in. She called me in and that changed my um, my career. I guess that was the beginning of my uh, consulting career. So. So what do you think Jean, she saw in you, you, though? Yeah, I was going to say, Jean, what did you see in Nilu at the time? But what do you think she saw in you? I think someone that was driven, that had worked hard, um, that, you know, was was ambitious, um, that wanted to do better. I, I'm hoping that's what she saw in me. And, you know, they, the same day they asked me to interview four other partners and they, you know, offered me a job that same day. That was like crazy day for me. I was super happy. So it just goes to show you kids, if you want a job, you write a letter, snail mail, and you send <laughs> exactly. it to the part. I'm just teasing. But I do think that there's a, uh, a notion of initiative there. But I also think there's something else I just want to highlight. Um, and the fact of the matter is that was probably back, what, like 1992-ish, I'm guessing? Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, 91. 31 years ago, Nilu, you remember Gene taking a risk on you and giving you an opportunity. And here you are talking about her on a podcast. And the reason why I raise this is that we're all so busy nowadays and we don't really recognize those moments that really do matter and the impact that we can make on people. Mm -hmm. And if we were all just to step back and think about when somebody comes into your life and the impact that you can make on them, whether it's through you know, counseling or mentorship or just advice and guidance, the impact that it can have on a person's life. It literally probably changed the trajectory of your life. Not to say you wouldn't have done well, but that was the break you needed. 
Yep. I think everyone needs, uh, you know, that person, that one person that gives them a, gives them a chance. I mean, the, the, the rest of it is up to the person, but I, 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 I anchor myself, Mike, to that. I, I try to make time as, as you know, as crazy, busy days that we have, I, I try to make time for the, the younger people, the students, and they come to me and, and, um, and I always say, well, what if I am that gene for them? So. Well, I would also uh, say it's probably the most enjoyable part of your job. It certainly is for me. And it's the thing that you will remember in 10 or 15, 20 years. It's, it's, it's only the people at the end of the day. I mean, projects or accomplishments come and go, but it truly is, in my opinion, the impact that you make on the humans that you interact with on a day-to-day basis. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. So let's get into Nilu finding your voice. That sounds like really deep, huh? You have made a huge pivot in your life and you have come to what's going on in Iran today. So let's talk a bit about what's going on in Iran. I think a lot of people probably have seen, you know, the stories maybe from afar, maybe they're deep into it, but I'd love to get your perspective on what's happening today so that this is such a major event and why is it different? Yeah, I, um, there's a woman led revolution happening in Iran. And, you know, it was triggered probably early September. Um, it's entering now its third month by death of a 22 year old woman who was detained, beaten and ultimately killed by uh, the Iranian morality police. That these are the police um, uh, that actually make sure that people are covering their hair and all that stuff and following the rule of their theocracy. But, you know, the death of that woman, and this was nothing new. This was, this has been going on for, you know, 40, 43 years there. But I think that trigger point was um, really the beginning of, of this younger generation who kind of were done. They just fearlessly went into the streets and 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 demanding their basic human rights so that's what's going on there and there's been um continuous crackdown of the government they cut down you know they cut off actually the internet um they arrest people detain them they rape them they sentence them to death there are over 16,000 people arrested and and the fight continues to this day so what I, uh, I'm curious about, and I think I know the answer, but many of these women that are activists now in Iran and are really putting their life on the line probably don't even know what life looked like before 1979 because they were born after That's that. That's right. That's right. I, I was actually thinking of an analogy, Mike, and and thinking that they're kind of the nucleus of, of, of what's going on in Iran right now because the outer layers who was like, my parents' generation, and then, you know, layer after that, which was me, we were all kind of, we saw, we saw the revolution, and there was that fear in us. But that, that center, that centerpiece never seen that fear. So they're fearless people. They've seen the world because they have access to the internet. So they've seen what freedom could, could be. 
So they are fighting for that without that fear that I had or my generation, you know, the generation before me had. So they don't, they don't have that. That's what I was going to ask you. You you did say that the internet has been cut off, but it sounds like before that they did have access to certain parts of the internet or even maybe direct contact with folks that live outside of Iran. Is that, is that true? And maybe if you could just talk a bit about that, because I'm, I'm curious, you know, how they got their information and, and what world they're actually seeing. I mean, this, this is the age of technology and, you know, um, people accessing anything from anywhere um, to, you know, so it's a connected world. So they, um, they, they're on it. I mean, they're on social media, all kinds of social media, TikTok, Instagram, mm-hmm. Facebook, uh, Twitter. So that generation was very much, um, first of all, they're super educated. Um, you know, uh, the, the females, uh, the female literacy actually uh, is quite high. One of the highest in the in the Middle Eastern countries. Um, it's in Iran. So these people are educated people. They know what's going on in the world and fearless. So combine that with the trigger point of you know killing someone because they didn't have a proper head covering. I mean, talking about you know, a a revolution. How can you talk about their education? Because I guess I was of the understanding that some of their education is limited. Is that, is that true? Yes. As a matter of fact, um, I want to say probably in, you know, over the years, I think in 2012 or so, they um, they limited the education of Iranian women. For example, um, women in Iran are not allowed for for certain science and engineering majors, which is, you know, holy Crazy. shit. Yeah. You know, we're we're promoting promoting that here in in the Western world to have more women in, in the field, but um, there are more women than men they were becoming a lot more educated. So a government ruled by, um, you know, fanatic men, what do they do? They want to put more control. They want to, you know, they want to keep them down. So, yeah, you know, that's just an example of what women can do. I mean, I can go on and give you a checklist, like single women cannot check in in a hotel by themselves. Um, They cannot go to a stadium to watch sports. Um, you know, they cannot get a divorce <laughs> and they can only get a divorce in accord while, while their husbands, you know, um, you know, can just declare a divorce. Um, they have lowered the age of marriage to, to nine now from, you know, from 18 to 13 and then from 12 to nine. And, and, you know, they mandate headscarf, you know, that your body, your choice does not exist. And gay rights don't, don't exist. You know, you're sentenced to death if you're known to be a gay or lesbian. So it's crazy. And, and they're like, we've had enough. Like, this is bullshit. No more. So, so Nilo, do you think that this is a vocal minority? Like women are like, something needs to change. Or do you think 
what we're hearing is representative of most women, most young women in Iran? It is definitely uh, representative of majority of people. Um, and those who are in the streets and those who are fighting, they're the younger generation. Right. They want change. They do not want reform. They want regime change. They want to uh, live a, a life with freedom and in democracy. That's what they want. So let's talk about your journey in this, because here you are a kid living in Tehran when shit goes sideways. You move to the U.S., you have this incredible life. You do well. You get this great job that Gene hooked you up with. You're a successful <laughs> yeah. businesswoman. You've got a beautiful family. Like, life is good. And then now you decide to be an activist. What the hell happened? Like, what brought you to this fight? I, um, I remember, obviously, when things were brewing up, I was definitely curious, definitely following um you know what was going on in iran and i think the trigger point was like i still have family there um and my niece had sent a text to to my daughter and um basically saying uh there is there is no internet here and they've cut up the vpns and and um hoping that you can get this um, text and please be our voice and tell the people how lonely we are in this part of the world. And that just was like, cut me deep. It hurt. It felt like it was my duty to act. This was too close to me. Here I am in a free country, um, which I thank my parents for. Um, and I have the opportunity to be their voice. Uh, for people who can't even access the internet. Um, and that's that's where I was like, okay, I'm going to do what I can do on my side as as a citizen. How old's your niece? About? 30, 33. So here she is asking for help because we are lonely. I mean, just, that's heavy. I mean, it's almost it like we're isolated from the rest of the world and... They're just asking for you to lend your voice to this cause. Yeah, they're not asking for money. They're not asking. They're just saying, be our voice. We are lonely on this part of the world. And if there is a chance that they can iMessage or if if there's moments or minutes that the internet is up, they, they're on it. They're, they're, these guys are uploading videos and, and, you know, pictures of what's going on there. but. They need um, the rest of the world to be their voice. So, Neela, you had a friend, I think you had told me, that said, wow, you're coming to the party now. Where were you back in, was it 2008 <laughs> or 2009? Yeah. Yeah, I know. My that. best friend, yeah, yeah, yeah. My best friend, who, Yasi, I, I, I met her uh, on, on our transition years, I would say, and, and I'm, so grateful, so lucky. She lives 20 minutes away from me. So she's my partner in crime. And um, we were at dinner and and I think maybe I'm surprising people around me in terms of how I'm speaking up. 
maybe maybe others are seeing another side of me, but my my best friend, she said, so where were you in 2009? Why are you so active right now? And I, I was quiet and, and I thought to myself, that's right, where was I? I don't even remember a green movement, which by the way, Obama apologized recently for not doing enough during that time and the irony of that. But, but I remember 2009 was a blur for many reasons for me. I, I was dealing with dark trauma of myself. I, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and I was middle of trying to figure out, figure out how to survive that moment, but how to, you know, find a suitable nursing home um, that I wouldn't be crying in just walking in there and that and would take my dad and, you know, their their financial situation was, you know, pr pretty, pretty bad. So, and I had young kids. So that's why I don't remember 2009 Green Movement. Um, so I was uh, in my own black hole, I would say. Yeah. And I am asking that question more just because you're new to this activism. And in many mm -hmm. respects, this is your song to be singing now. And I think we all come at life, you know, in different ways, things matter at a certain point in time. Um, you were taking care of your father who moved you guys to the U.S. And in many respects, sounds like a hero to you. Um, so I don't think it's absolutely anything to be ashamed of. I think what you should be deeply proud of is that you're joining the fight now. And this is your yep. song. I am doing my best, Mike. I, I, I feel like, again, I, I don't know if I can label myself a true activist because there are so many other people who are doing a, an amazing job out there. But, you know, I am a professional. I'm a consultant. I And I spend most of my, um, you know, hours in the day, you know, working in teams, serving clients, and I love it. But, you know, everything outside of that, I, you know, I am on it. I try to be, you know, amplifying the voice of of, of others who can't uh, using social media to help. I contact my elected officials. I, I participate in every local protest that takes place, um, even if I have to go by myself, but usually I'm with my friends. Um, I educate myself. I, um, I contribute to wonderful organizations who are amplifying their voices. There is a uh, organization, Iranian Diaspora Collective, IDC, that they're nonpartisan, multi-faith group that that really, their charter is uh, to amplify, um, you know, the voice of, of, of the, the Iranians. Um, and these are public figures, influencers, actors, media and tech, um, leaders out there and, and, you know, they, they formed this group and within a matter of literally five or six days, they raised a half a million dollars and they, they lit up, um, uh, Times Square with, with billboards and, and billboards everywhere in, in, in LA, in New York, in London, uh, but, but much more than, much more than the, the media awareness they're they're really working to amplify 
the voices of the Iranian citizens. In many respects, just I want to connect it back to what your niece asked. She said, Mm -hmm. you know, people need to start talking about this. And so once again, you always kind of try to downplay the impact that you're having, but the fact that you're talking about this now, the fact that you're protesting, the fact that you're raising money, I just want to applaud you because you're joining the fight. And I think the impact that you can have um, is going to be significant. And this is exactly what your niece was asking for. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, and I'm hoping, and that's where I kind of anchor myself back to, yeah, I'm not that, you know, that the, you know, the global brand activist, but there are more people like me out there. And if we can all do our part, our small part or big part, whatever part that you you can do, we can really make an impact here. We can really make an impact. I'm curious, obviously this is not something you would prefer to do because obviously you'd want, you know, a free and democratic Iran. And so that Mm -hmm. you wouldn't be spending your days doing this, but you are because now it's kind of your calling or your purpose. I'm curious, how does it, how does it feel on a personal level? to find something like this that truly matters? I, um, it's empowering, it's emotional, it's, you know, tiring, but it's, you know, one of those tiredness that you kind of keep going. <laughs> you, you, um, you know, it's pretty powerful to, to see that you're making an impact. And I, I am absolutely seeing a progress. I, uh, you know, this week on Thanksgiving Day, the they group of people are, are in United Nations actually discussing the future of Iran because they happen to be uh, on a commission for status of woman, which is super ironic. Um, but there's, you know, there's record breaking worldwide protests happening. There are campaigns taking place uh, to amplify, amplify this story. There's um, there's, you know, we see more sanctions being applied um, to the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. There are Western governments um, like Canada, U.S., EU, Germany, France, that they're recognizing that there is a revolution that, and they're condemning it. So there is progress. And, you know, I uh, always go back to an analogy I've used, uh, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You eat it one piece at a time. And sorry for the analogy. I'm an elephant lover myself, but <laughs> it's just an analogy, people. You're going to be, yeah, hopefully you're very full when this is all done. Um, but I think what, what, I, what I think of is, you know, we often go through life just meandering from one thing to another without any purpose. And even though this is a very difficult thing to go through, the reason why I love having these conversations is hearing people where they come to realize what truly is important in life. And sometimes, you know, the shit that's important in life is the hard stuff. And this is the hard stuff, but you've got something that you're working towards and you said it, you're making an impact. And I'm sure, you know, in some regards, when you think about, you know, previous parts of your life, it's like, I'm alive and I'm doing something that matters. And I think that's important for, you know, us all to find. And I think this is like my sixth or seventh interview. And, you know, it's been from, you know, overcoming heroin addiction to, you know, living your life after your mom's murder to finding purpose post, you know, corporate life. Like you found your thing and you are living your life. 
I, I, I want to say I have, and, and Mike, before obviously these series of events happens, you know, another, you know, every, I, I, I am a firm believer that every trauma bring, brings and has a, you know, hopefully a good story at the end. But my dad spent years, you know, early onset Alzheimer's and, and, and ultimately lost, lost the battle to it 11 years ago. But I also started dedicating my life to a wonderful organization, Alzheimer's uh, Los Angeles. I'm part of the board of director and I'm equally passionate about the cause mm-hmm. because I've, I've lived it. I have lived the life of, you know, knowing what it is to, to be in that um, situation where you're, you're, it's, it's a family matter. It, it brings right. the entire family down. So anyway, um, you know, from time to time, you find a purpose, um, given, you know, what you're going through. And, and I feel like this is my calling now. When I think that's the, that's the point is that if you're mindful, you can find purpose in many different places. You found it in that Alzheimer's, you found it in this. So I want to get back to what's going on uh, in Iran today. And I'm curious, do you see any progress like do you think this is going to be one of those things that flares up and then goes down and it takes another event like this in you know three to five years for us to pay attention to again i mean i um i think it it has it has made an impact as i I, as i talked about the the progress that we're seeing uh happening in the world um and you know there have been many number of movements in the past several years, 43 years, but this has been the longest duration. Um, and, you know, and the world is really paying attention. I think, I think this is going to be it. I hope this is going to be it. I think this is going to be it. Well, it doesn't sound like you're going to stop. No, I'm not going to give up. That's great. So what do you think, our U.S. leaders should be doing more of? Well, you know, don't support this Islamic regime. There should be no negotiations on on the nuclear deal. There is uh, no releasing of sanctions, you know. Cut your diplomatic ties, you know, put pressure on the the humanitarian bodies that, that can take action on Iran. That's what, that's what they can do. What can the average person like me do to support the cause? Like, what's just a couple things? Um, I would say if you know of an Iranian American uh, or Iranian, check on them. It's really emotional time. Um, if you're comfortable posting, amplifying the, the voices, these are incredibly brave um people fighting um, with their voices, with their body and spirit. They have nothing else. So, um, it, you know. That's an easy thing to do. I mean, you're saying two things that I think are super practical that anybody can do. If you yeah. know an Iranian American, ask them how things are. What can you do to help them? And then we're all on social media. Amplify if you see something. And, and actually, maybe this is a good opportunity. Where can people find you? I think your your Instagram is now public. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I opened up. Find you? Yep. 
You opened up, you opened up for the world because of your cause. I love it. <laughs> yeah, because I realized that if you do a hashtag, it doesn't count unless your your account is actually public. So, Absolutely. you know, I, um, I would say don't underestimate the, the power of your individual voices. Um, it's incredibly so Nilu, powerful. Where do people find you on Instagram then? Uh, at Nilu Bedrug on Instagram. Oh, you got a much better handle than I did. Um, so Nilu Bedrud on Instagram, go, go find her and amplify all of the stuff that she's doing. Um, and actually one thing you could do is take this damn podcast and share it with your community as well, because this is a firsthand account of what's going on. I so will I'm curious. do that. You'll do that. Okay. Well, you'll do that, but I'm asking other people who are listening to take this podcast and share it with everybody. Um, that is the one the thing word. that they can do. That's the one that, thing that they can do. Totally. That That's easy. So I'm curious, you've gone through this experience where you've now found your voice, but you've also gone through some challenging times. I mean, you grew up in Toronto. I mean, I think that is so fascinating that you would literally were there as a young kid when there was a regime change with all of the stuff that went along with it. I'm curious, what advice would you have for somebody who may have dealt with some challenges in their youth? And it doesn't necessarily need to be your fact pattern. It could be something else that may be bubbling up, you know, many decades later, what advice do you have from them based on the journey that you've been on? I would say, you know, what I said earlier, the power of your individual voice. Um, we have a voice. Um, I, I work in an organization with amazing leaders who really um, remind us of the resilience of women speaking up. And e if each of us can do our part to amplify the voice of a voiceless, and, and really stand up for humanity, our world can be a better place. So I would say if one advice is your voice matters, amplify it. I love it. Nilu, we are getting to the end. I just have a couple more questions and then the grand finale. Um, so the Jeez. question that I have is you live an interesting life because you were in Iran, you were able to get out. Now you live this incredible life where you're really successful. How do you balance living this great life with the activism and everything that you know that's happening in Iran? It's a really good question, actually. I give myself permission to do things that bring me joy, Mike. Mm. I um, Like pickleball? I do, I do plenty. <laughs> it's either from playing my guitar and yeah. continuing to learn to how to do playing pickleball. Uh, there's nothing like a beautiful sunny day that you can get out there and hit the ball with your friends. I feel like when I'm out there, the five-year-old in me comes out uh, on pickleball courts. I, I uh, more importantly also discovered um, a meditation method, transcendental meditation that um, I've been doing it for five years. I, um, you know, take twice a day, 20 minutes each, um, to do that. I, I spend time with my friends and, uh, you know, I play cards with them and I go to dinner with my family. I talk to my kids, I, or binge watch a really good show. So I, I try to do as many as as many things, and it could be different things, different days to, to bring me joy. 
I want to go back to the transcendental meditation, something you mm-hmm. and I have talked about, actually a lot about, because I just I do, do it, Mike, just, just do, do it. it. I know. No, no, but I, I know, but it's, it's like a commitment. So I'm curious, first of all, how has meditation, and we'll get to the TM, but how does meditation help you deal with stress? Stress, obviously, in the context of what's going on in Iran, but you also lead a life where people are stressed because of work and relationships and all the shit that comes at us in life. So can you talk about the impact that meditation has made on you personally? I want to say it's been super positive for me. Um, you know, I I discovered it in the height of, you know, going through a lot of anxiety in my life. And, you know, I came across this method. I was suspicious about it. I, you know, started learning and educating myself. And I said, oh, I'll give it a try. And at the beginning, it was super hard. It was super hard. You know, I felt like, oh my God, there's no way I can I can do 20 minutes. That's like 40 minutes in a day. There's a lot that I could do. But that moment that you break that cycle uh, and just give yourself a permission to quiet things down, I come back. I mean, everyone's experience is different. I come back with renewed energy. And even if things are good or bad or really crazy at that moment, the minute that you you start kind of quieting it down, it, 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 you can come back with much more energy and much more power, creativity, focus, all of that. I think it's been great. Yeah, let me try this one out on you. Because, and it's actually kind of, you know, if we were talking about meditation eight years ago, maybe this would be original because it seems like everybody does it now, uh, but there's still a lot of people that don't. And one of the things that I've experienced, and this is why when I'm, when I'm regular, which I am now, uh, but I find that when shit goes sideways or something happens or I get stressed or something bad goes on that I can find the space to figure out how I can react because before, and even to this day, if I'm not meditating, I have a tendency, a really bad habit of overreacting where I'm like 10 minutes later, like that was not who I am. What is wrong with me? And now I can like literally trace back very specific examples of being in stressful situations where if I'm regularly meditating, I'm able to hold that space, which to me is a game changer because it allows you to show up better with your family. It allows you to show up better with your, with your colleagues at work. It, it allows you just to be a better damn human being. And so for me, that's where it's been a game changer in addition to just being more at peace at life, with life. So I don't, have you experienced that? I have, and I'll tell you, I know that there, there are different methods of meditation, but sometimes I think of, uh, I do my best thinking sometimes. It comes out during my meditation and then I go back to my mantra. But uh, there are those moments that, you know, once thing, you force yourself or you uh, work with yourself inwardly, uh, some of the most amazing thinking will come out. And, you know, that I have discovered. The game 100%. Changer. Yeah, I think what I am going to do, I actually wrote it in my to-do list. Um, I am pretty intentional. So I think I am going to, in 2023, try the TM. So I'm going to take the plunge, make the investment, and uh, see where it takes me. 
stick with it, my, you know, it took me like <laughs> three months. As I said at the beginning, there was like no way. There's no way I could be, you right. know, quite down for twenty. But stick with it. It will. It, it will be a a powerful um, method. I hope. I think. Oh, I have no problem meditating. That's not my problem. I actually do twenty minutes. I don't do twice a day. I think it's the TM method. I have not tried. So that's what I'm. I'm really curious about. So I'm relying on your recommendation. I so hope neither. it works. Yeah. So do I. So do I. So do I. Well, I'll let you know. Um, so I want to end with my final question. And when and I always say this in every one of these interviews, but you know, when I came up with this podcast, it really was about, you know, people being lost or stuck or feeling like there's something else that should be in their lives and you know, somehow they figured it out. And that's what I was interested in is just mining those insights and nuggets so that other people potentially could apply it to their lives. And you really have come full circle in many respects, you know, going up, growing up in Iran and seeing everything that you did and and now being one of the voices, being one of the voices, once again, that your, that your niece asked uh, to be out there. So when you think about this journey that you've been on, what song comes to mind? Yeah, I can. I mean, there's so many songs that come to my mind. I, you know, I, I feel like I need an album, not just a song. But, um, you know, there are Persian songs that, you know, I resonate with. There's this Baraya song, which was which was made by the uh, sheriff in Hajipur, which is the revolution's anthem to or just to disconnect and listen to my favorite jazz band, Pink Martini, or you know, a, a favorite rap artist or, you know, uh, Imagine Dragon, but, 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 but my go-to song in the, in the last few weeks uh, that I've been chanting to myself uh, has been a song by one of my favorite artists, Muse. Um, they released this, uh, this uh, album called Resistance, but this song called Uprising, that they talk about, they will not force us they will not degrade us. They will not control us. And we will be victorious. I That's the that. song that sits with me. Well, Nilu, thank you so much for spending the last hours with us. I, uh, I've known you for a while. I didn't know a lot, of, a lot of this about you. And I applaud, once again, everything that you're doing. You know, it's an inspiration for me to watch you find your voice. I've known you for the last several years and the impact that you're making. I know that you're... You're one where you're like, oh, I'm not that big of an activist and, you know, I don't have that big of a brand. But, you know, the more Nilu's out there, I think the bigger impact, as you said, it's going to make. So so thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for sharing your story and your openness and your vulnerability. I, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate I appreciate you. Mike, thank you. Thank you for giving me the platform. Thank you for doing this for for our world and and uh, I appreciate the time. It's it's been a privilege. Nilu, thank you for sharing your story. When I started this podcast, I wanted to showcase everyday people finding their calling and making an impact. And that is exactly what you are doing. You are one of the voices bringing attention to how women are being treated in Iran. Let me leave you with a few takeaways. First, Finding your song could happen when you least expect it. For Nilu, it was after she raised her kids and built a successful career. Don't fret if you haven't found your song, but when you do, don't waste the opportunity 
to do something special like Neelu is. Second, you don't have to have a big brand or millions of social media followers to make an impact. Revolutions are often sparked by the commitment of ordinary people deeply committed to change. And finally, Neelu's story reminds me of how important family and culture truly is. Whether it's her parents giving up everything for their children to live a free life or Neelu fighting for freedom in her native country. So I'm on the hunt for great stories of people who are finally singing their song. As my guests have demonstrated, there are very few constraints on what it looks like to sing your song. Hit me up if you have a great story or if you know somebody who does. On social media, Mike Kearney on LinkedIn and mkearney33 on Twitter. You can even email me, Mike at timetosingyoursong.com. Until next time, start singing your song today because as the anonymous quote goes, when tomorrow comes, the day will be gone forever. In its place is something that you have left behind. Let it be something good.